0: Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today we are revisiting an interview from 2018 with Jean Sue. Jean is VP of Engineering at Range, which makes product management software that aims to make teamwork way less work. Before that, she worked at places like Google, Pulse, and Medium. When we spoke to Jean, she was an engineering leadership coach, and she shared her advice on people-centric management specifically, how to bridge the gap between transitioning from an individual contributor to first-time manager. In today's episode, you'll hear Gene talk about leadership voids in the tech climate, whether or not managers still need to allocate time toward keeping their technical skills sharp, and the importance of a psychologically safe work environment. Former Intercom editor Adam Risman was behind the mic for this interview, so let's head over to the studio to hear Adam chat with Gene Sue.
1: Gene, welcome to Inside Intercom.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you here. So you spent the last while of your career as an engineering leadership coach, mm-hmm. which we'll get into what exactly that means here in a minute. But for many years, you worked in-house as an IC and engineering lead at a range of different tech companies. So just to get us started, can you give us the cliff notes of your career today? I mean, how did you get here?
2: Sure. Um, I started as an intern at Google, and that was my first and only tech internship, and I converted to full-time. So I ended up uh, moving out here from New Jersey, worked at Google Mountain View for about a year and a half on the checkout team, left with not really any plans other than I want to see what else is out there. And I didn't, like from the East Coast, I didn't know what else was out there. And then I did a bit of Android work on my own and then ended up at Pulse, which is a news or RSS reader. And I worked on their Android app for um, almost exactly one year. At that point, I was... Uh, recruited to the obvious corporation, which later became Medium, and worked on the fir- first Medium prototype. That was really where I spent a lot of time as an IC and then tech lead, and then eventually engineering manager.
1: You must have seen Medium change and grow a lot in that time. And you were there for how long?
2: Uh, about five and a half years. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was it was like five people on the product team when I joined, and then it was uh, the whole the whole company was I think 160 at its peak when I was there.
1: And so what was it? Was there an aha moment that drove you to then leave Medium and go into coaching, leadership coaching?
2: Uh, I think the end of last year, there were a lot of kind of reflection points. I mean, I, I just I just turned 30. Uh, so you start to you know think about what you're doing with your life, and then it was the end of the year, which is also you know a common reflection. I point. turned thirty
1: in six months, so I've been thinking about this. too Yeah, much.
2: exactly. It's a it's a very natural time to to question, <laughs> you know, take a critical look. And then I had just hit my five year mark too, and so there was all it's kind of like all those three things together. I started to think about what was next.
1: And so, in practice, what mm-hmm. does the role of an engineering leadership coach look like? Because Unless you have a coach, it's hard to envision what coaching is.
2: Right. Actually, what I do is usually a mix of coaching and mentorship, depending on the client. But coaching by itself is really helping someone figure out what it is they already know. And so that might be helping them get in touch more with like what their inner critic says, you know, what are the things that hold them back? And then what is it that they want? Because a lot of people actually don't get asked that a lot. Like, what do you want? And then helping them come up with a plan to to get to what they want.
1: Does everyone have an answer for that right away, though? What Mm, what do you want?
2: Yeah, no, because you're not asked. You're basically never asked it directly. So a lot of people don't. And a lot of the coaching is like helping them, you know, reflecting back to them what seems to excite them. So Mm. I might say something like, oh, you know, when you talked about this project, your face really lit up and helping them kind of helping them figure out what it is that they get excited about so that they can then figure out what they want.
1: So is this a void that you felt personally in your own transition into leadership? I mean, take me back to that transition for mm-hmm. you. What what stories or lessons stick out the most?
2: Sure. It was, um, I think what led me to coaching was realizing that it was a pretty rough transition despite all the support I had. So I had, you know, a really supportive manager. I had a lot of peers that I could lean on. And even then, I remember, you know, one of the stories that stick out to me was, um, I wasn't used to, I mean, as an IC, your calendar is pretty much open, right? And uh, I remember having switched to management and looking at, waking up one morning, looking at my calendar and I just had like meetings from like nine to five.
1: (laughs) So when does the work get done?
2: Yeah. And so, so like I was definitely in that mindset of like, this is not the real work, right? And I remember rolling out of bed, getting my laptop out and just opening like three pull requests, delete like a few hundred lines of code that I had just found like within 10 minutes. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, whew. well, now I've done some work today. Now I can like go to my meetings. <laughs> and so that was really um, one of the moments I remember. And now I'm like, oh, it was clear that I wasn't in the mindset yet that the meetings were actually the work, mm-hmm. not just like something that was happening to me and taking up my time. <laughs> but that's a really rough transition to make because engineers so- spend so much time working with code, working with software building systems and then if they switch to tech lead or manager then they're really expected to step away from that in some capacity and that can be a really difficult way of like how do I deal with my own like self-worth and productivity yeah
1: Yeah, how do you measure accomplishments and things like that
2: yeah because it can take a lot longer for some of the things in management to to kind of pan out and, and give you that feedback
1: You mentioned that you felt like you did have pretty good support, but Mm -hmm. do you feel like that is common in this industry or do a lot of the people that you work with tend to not have access to that support that you had?
2: I don't think it's common. I think Medium had a very um, unusually people-centric and very supportive culture. And actually, when I first transitioned to management, it was actually called this term called group lead. And it was more of a coach, really, because I didn't work with a lot of the people that I was group lead for. And so I came to management very much from this, like, I had to learn how to be a coach because I couldn't just be like, thanks for the feedback. I'll go fix your problem now, right. which you can do if you're kind of like a tech lead manager. You can kind of lean into the, um, I'll just go fix it for you or I'll just go do it myself.
1: Mm-hmm. But I mean, you have to have some restraint there, right? Or it's going to be hard for people to learn from those mistakes. Yeah. Uh, did, you, did you feel like, you mentioned having to, to those pull requests. Was it hard for you to step away from the code base?
2: Uh, it was I think not as hard as for some people. It was hard to to step away because that was that that's something. Especially deleting code was very like therapeutic for me, and so it, it was kind of this like ongoing joke where people would my my manager would be like, "Oh, you seem kind of stressed out lately," because he'd see like you know five to ten pull requests of like code deletion. <laughs> so it was hard to step away, but I think it was for me. I think I had this realization one day that I was actually. Like it doesn't do anyone good for me to clean up after them. Right. It was actually teaching them that like someone is going to clean up after you. And I was kind of depriving them of the joy of doing that because I I found it so joyful and I was was really like taking it away.
1: So in the time since your own transition Mm -hmm. with a lot of people that you've worked with in the past year, do you feel whether they're first time managers or even people who are veterans in that type of role Mm -hmm. that where they're struggling is in a lot of those same places or is that landscape evolved a little bit?
2: Mm, I think it depends on the person, but I definitely see a lot of common themes. I mean, I think for a first time sort of like team lead or tech lead or first time managers, there's definitely the productivity when you're stepping away from the work of feeling like, oh, I don't want to be too far away from it because then what's my value? But there's also, I think, a, a common transition of like being the good student, the like person who does the stuff that someone hands to you, but right. you're not really responsible for the decisions. You just do the stuff that transition from that to being the responsible party. So the person who sees a problem and comes with a solution and takes initiative and, you know, rallies the troops and and like presents it to the executive team and say, hey, we have this problem. Here's how we want to solve it.
1: Right. And then can also go back to the team and make sure that everyone feels like they have a role that matters in that equation to ultimately solving that problem, right?
2: Right, cuz it's really easy just to complain <laughs> <laughs> yes. and not not really be part of the solution.
1: So, Google, Pulse, Medium, not just very different companies, but very different in terms of size and mm-hmm. scope. I'm wondering what's something that maybe you took from the culture of each of those places? Could be positive, could be negative, could just be peculiar, or interesting that mm-hmm. has really stuck with you and helped shape the way that you would advise others.
2: I think Google really showed me what's necessary at scale. So, um, you know, I went into Google with no real sense of what it means to be a software engineer. Um, and I came out with a much better sense of that. And so just like code reviews, you know, technical rigor, all that stuff, um, which is less important at a, you know, when you're like two people, but much more important when it's like, you know, there's 10,000 engineers working on one code base, right? So that really instilled that in me. I didn't know that that was because of the scale until I moved to Pulse. And I realized that, you know, that there were very few tests in the code base. Like there was a lot of copy paste. There was a lot of, um, you know, even in the same file, like inconsistent indentation. And uh, it was it was very surprising to me, but I also realized that You know, they had done something I don't think any team at Google would have been able to do. They shipped uh, an iPhone, iPad and Android app all within six months. So I think for me, that really showed me like when, you know, when do you just kind of like throw things out and see what sticks and when do you build it? Because Google, you don't get to do that, right? Like anything you ship is going to have millions of users like on day one. Um, so
1: you can't move quite as fast.
2: Right, right. Like there's a level of like, you have to build it right (laughs) because there's nothing, I mean, it might just get deprecated in a year, but you still have to build it to a certain level. Every
1: little change is affecting either the lives or workflows or whatever it may be of so many people that the domino effect is much larger if one little thing goes wrong.
2: Yeah. Whereas Pulse, um, came from a very like, uh, IDEO design school type of like, see what happens, get a lot of user feedback and like iterate and no one really knows us anyways. So we'll just like yeah. try a bunch of things and see what happens. Shift to
1: learn, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Move quickly.
1: And what about at Medium?
2: Medium, I think, is where I really saw, um, moved into management, but also saw like the more people-centric side of of um, management. I mean, I think I had that probably at Pulse and Google to some degree, but I wasn't, you know, really paying attention to it because I wasn't in that role myself. Um, But at at Medium, I really felt like um, I moved more into finding what it meant for me to be a leader and um, how to motivate others as well without just like doing more work.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you you said people-centric management there. How do you define Mm -hmm. that exactly?
2: Um, I think a lot of times people think we don't have time to care about what people want or Um, you know, support people. That's kind of a luxury for companies that have it more figured out. I think the opposite is true. Like when, if you, even if you're in the middle of a release, or even if you're a startup finding product market fit, if you can figure out what people want, and then uh, that can help you align, you know, what the company wants with what people want, and that can actually help you, you help everyone move more quickly. Um, But I, I don't see that happening a lot in the industry. And I feel like there's kind of like a dehumanizing aspect to that as well. Yeah, definitely.
1: So in Medium, you manage fairly large teams. I think I saw somewhere as, as many as 12 or 15. How how many people were, were underneath you?
2: So we had an interesting structure. Sometimes I was running um, a product team with about 12 engineers, but I was managing maybe like three quarters of them, but okay. then also had like four or five other direct reports. So anywhere from like 12 to 15 direct reports.
1: So that's a lot. I mean, did mm-hmm. you, how were you able to, not just in terms of having regular one-on-ones with all these people, but making sure that you had the the processes and structure in place so that all of those direct reports felt that they were getting the ample development that they needed in, in interfacing with their, their boss and all that stuff that that's so important. Um, but when you have a team of, say, three direct reports versus mm-hmm. nine, I mean, time is is a, resource
2: with limitations right yeah it was really difficult like when I had I think the most I had was 15 direct reports and it was definitely a challenge um people were on like every other week one-on-ones for 30 minutes which I acknowledged was not enough and I Mm -hmm. knew it wasn't enough but we were hiring for another manager and I think a lot of being a manager is just like kind of uh I've heard the analogy of like plate spinning, you know, in the circus, you have like the plate spinners. It's like you just try to keep them up. (laughs) And, you you know, sometimes you're like, I can't do it. Like, you take it. Um, We're like, hire another plate spinner. But yeah, there's times when I was just super upfront with my manager and was like, hey, this team is my focus. And like, I'm doing the one on ones with these four people. But like, I'm not really, you know, I'm not going to the meetings. And like, if something really dire happens, like, I'll let you know. But like, that's basically I'm at capacity. Mm -hmm. And I think just being really upfront, managing up, making sure that that was okay with my manager, because maybe he would be like, oh, well, he was fine with it. He's like, yeah, I understand. Like, this is not sustainable and we're hiring. But, you know, he could have said, oh, actually, this other team is more important. right? Right. And so just having like really honest conversations with him
1: is there an ideal ratio of any kind or is it too circumstantial to say?
2: Probably depends on the person. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, 15 was really a a lot. Yeah. I had a sweet spot of like, I sort of had this idea that if I had like six to eight people, then I could support them really well, but also have time and space to think about some larger strategic things. But I know like at Google or some other companies, sometimes people have like 30 or 40 direct reports, and like, that's not management. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's something else, right? That's like having a reporting structure. Exactly. Yeah.
1: A lot is written about moving into management without, at least in terms of engineers, without losing your technical edge. Mm. Does that really matter in a position where your impact is, is no longer measured in code commits? Like, is it How important is it to stay on top of those things, or mm-hmm. are you ultimately being distracted by trying to do that?
2: I think it depends on the person. I mean, I think there's this post recently about the like IC manager pendulum. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty common to do IC for a few years, do management for a few years. That the best ICs back. were
1: recently managers and the best managers were recently ICs.
2: Right. And that's, that's a common career track. I mean, not track. I've also heard it called like a jungle gym, you know? <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, life changes, people change and you might want different things. And so I think that you can, there are people who, know for sure they all always want to keep one foot in the technical work but I think what's important is to question why <laughs> so for me I, I always you know when I was moving more fully into management I remember talking to my manager and I'm like oh I sort of feel like maybe it'll be questioned like if I go anywhere else people will not take me seriously technically and I, I was very aware of like that possibility and he prompted me to think about, like, well, what would you get out of it? You know, what are the skills or whatever that you would get out of going back and building more technical depth? And, and a lot of it was just, like, my inner critic of, like, well, maybe people won't think I'm good enough. And hmm. so I think trying to figure out, like, is it because you truly want it or is it because you have self-doubt about, you know, whether people will take you seriously or not and the imposter syndrome.
1: Right. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Yeah.
2: But there's not, like, a right or a wrong, you know? <laughs> there's some people always want to be coding at least part of the time
1: yeah i think it's it's finding that balance i think is what's really important Mm
2: -hmm.
0: before we continue with today's guest i just want to take a quick second to let you know about our amazing archive of podcasts it's full of insights from thought leaders from the worlds of product management design marketing and a lot more people like megan keeney anderson Megan was VP of Marketing for HubSpot for over nine years. She joined us to talk about how marketers should adapt their customer acquisition strategies in the age of the internet. The
2: internet will rise and fall and go through different iterations and our job as content creators, as marketers, is to really study that and stay close to it and adapt.
0: You can hear Megan's episode and lots more on intercom.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's get back to today's interview.
1: So I know one thing that you're particularly passionate about that I think at least rose to more, not necessarily prominence, but I think was under a much bigger spotlight Mm -hmm. uh, several years back when Google did their project Aristotle. They found that the number one indicator of a successful team more so than the skill levels of the ICs or anything like that, was a culture of psychological safety. I know Mm -hmm. that's something that's really important to you and that you've written quite a lot about. Just to set the groundwork for that topic, what does psychologically safe versus unsafe environment look like? I mean, what are the blockers that team members are running into or questions they feel like they can't ask? Can can you paint that picture for us?
2: Sure. So I think for me, a psychologically safe environment is one where people feel comfortable taking risks. Um, They feel comfortable failing. They feel comfortable having really honest conversations and and being a bit vulnerable with the people around them. So maybe that's, you know, even if you're a leadership position, like opening yourself up, like having people see that you make mistakes and you're human, um, and that can really set the stage for what goes on, like in the layers below, Mm -hmm. you know, a leader. I think psychologically unsafe, sometimes it's not super obvious, but one of the things I've seen is like, you know, people aren't taking initiative. That that's pretty common. Where it's like, oh, we're and people tend to say like, oh, we need to hire more like mission aligned or like go getters, you know. And it's like, well, what about the people you hired? You, right. you hired them for a reason, right? And um, I think a lot of the times, it's sort of people don't feel comfortable or or safe stepping up and saying, hey, I have this idea, because maybe in the past they've been shut down or criticized without being recognized for stepping up. And I think there's also like just the level of conversations people are having. You know, if you find that like people are only talking about work or people come show up and they're always like, things are fine, you know, and there's not really much depth to the conversation that can also be an indicator of like not really psychologically safe.
1: So how do things tend to get this way? Because usually when it's Mm -hmm. only the first handful of people in a room, they're all questioning, breaking everything and they have such great rapport. Is it a lack of onboarding for new people? How I mean, it's, it's, I'm sure it's gradual, but mm-hmm. how do things come so stale where people feel like they can't question the status quo in a working environment?
2: Mm. I think it's a bunch of factors. I mean, some of it is where people come from. So if people have come from a more toxic workplace, they may just assume that that's the way things mm-hmm. are. Or maybe, you know, you add in a layer of management and people suddenly assume Oh, those are the people who are making the decisions and now I just execute. And when those changes happen, not having those conversations around like what are expectations and what are the things you can bring to the table. I've seen that a lot.
1: So is that a really important thing then where? Because I know as startups grow, hierarchy is one thing that Mm -hmm. ultimately has to be introduced. So being more proactive in terms of how an additional structure within the org is actually going to change or maybe not change the way people work.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being super clear about what it means to have. A layer of management, right? Because some people are used to management being like, well, this person is just going to decide what I do. Like every interaction with them is them like judging me and, you know, jotting down notes for the next performance review. Right.
1: Is my, are my goals green or orange or red?
2: <laughs> right, right. And um, I think a lot of people haven't experienced management as like, hey, I'm here to help you, you know, the servant leadership aspect of it. And so being super clear and building that trust early on is, is really important because otherwise people just make assumptions about what their manager is there for.
1: Right. So for anyone in management that might be listening to Mm -hmm. this episode of the show, is there any types of, whether it's something formal, like a a questionnaire or an activity, or maybe just more informal questions they should be asking themselves to take stock of of where their team is on this this spectrum of psychological safety?
2: Mm -hmm. I know there's like a few different types of like surveys that you can do because sometimes people if it's really bad, people are not even going to feel safe.
1: To yeah, I mean, are these problems it. are these problems fixable? I mean, how do you course correct if things go south in this way?
2: I think it requires pretty upfront and honest conversations. I mean, I think it would be hard to admit that things are are not going well. So there's a level of vulnerability in just saying like, "Hey, you know, we took the survey and this is not this does not look good," and yeah. like, let's let's figure out what to do with that, right? But I think it really comes from leadership to set that example.
1: Is this something where more unconventional team building exercises, like say an offsite could help play a role in terms of just having people break down barriers and be more comfortable building those relationships that when they are in the workplace, then they can have those tougher conversations about, hey, maybe we need to see if the systems are still the right solution that's Mm -hmm. been in place for so long and being able to question those things.
2: Sure. Yeah. An offsite can be a great opportunity to kind of take a pause from where whatever is the day to day and... You know, depending on the offsite activities, but doing things that are more like trust building Mm -hmm. or talking about, you know, what's important to people that could be a good way to build kind of like jumpstart some trust building.
1: So one of the best things about being an engineer at a startup is the feedback loops. Mm -hmm. And when you're in the weeds as an IC, you're experiencing those all the time. And then when you move into a management role, a lot of those things you're working towards are you're in, you're in rooms having conversations about long-term quarterly annual company goals. Mm-hmm. How do you make sure you don't lose sight of the small successes that your team has and continue to celebrate those as opposed to measuring everything to All right, that's that's great, but how does it play into this overarching company goal that I'm now having to report on to my supervisors within the company?
2: Yeah, it's um it can be difficult because the feedback loops are longer and so sometimes you know you might think of like the team execution in a quarter you know how peop- how how motivated are people? How is the team executing this quarter and that that can be sort of a you know long enough that if you make any changes they can <laughs> they can percolate a little right. bit. Some of them are just like, you know you don't you might ask for feedback, but some of it you you kind of have to like make up like I mean, I remember this one time i I had a direct report and i he wasn't that happy about sort of the way projects were being assigned. It wasn't even projects, it was more like tasks. You know, I don't remember what I asked him, but it was something around like, well, you know, what do you think should happen? And he then emailed the tech lead and product manager and they completely changed the way they were like, oh, you don't feel ownership? Like, let's change that. Let's give you more visibility into what the problems are and like what the projects are that come from the problems. And then, so you always have context on like, you know, how does this contribute to our purpose as a team? And I felt really good about it because I'm like, well, I had that conversation, right? But no one else knew. So mm-hmm. if I didn't really take credit for it, just internally myself, like I don't think anyone would have really given right. me yeah, credit. I it. <laughs> right. So you kind of have to like be a little bit selfish and, and um, make up some stories about, you know, conversations you've had and the, the impact of them.
1: There are definitely times where it's okay to be selfish. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't think we should discourage that.
1: Right. So you have some... Pretty exciting news that just mm-hmm. popped up, at least publicly in your uh, professional life. And that is that you are going to be partnering with Edmund Lau in mm-hmm. the coming year, who's a fellow engineering leader, wrote The Effective Engineer, which is a book that we're a big fan of. We've had him on the podcast previously. And um, you're going to be doing a series of workshops and like all, all sorts of things. I'm not really exactly sure mm-hmm. what, but if you can tell us about what some of those plans are and where we can learn more about them, that'd be really exciting.
2: Sure. So what we're out to do is to build the best leadership program for leaders in tech, starting with engineering leaders. So um, both of us have coached many engineering leaders anywhere from like tech leads through VPNs and CTOs. And so what we want to do is to take those learnings and put together workshops and frameworks and and you know, move on to online courses so that those frameworks are accessible to anyone, not just people who can have access to us as, as individual coaches. And so what we're going to start to do is to build workshops. And a lot of it will be around, you know, having conversations as engineering leaders, really around the people-centric, like trust-building aspect of leadership. And then probably next year, the middle of the year, we'll start to do some more online courses and because and, it is a very SF centric right now because that's where, you know, we're both in the Bay Area. So we hope to move from more on-site workshops and, you know, going into companies and doing workshops to more online and, and global work. That's
1: awesome. So five years from now, if there was something that had changed that you could potentially draw back to you and, and Edmund's efforts, I mean, what what change are you hoping to drive here?
2: So my dream is that everyone who works at a tech company will feel supported. They'll feel like their managers care about them as humans and they will feel like connections with their manager and the people around them. I think that that is something that is really lacking right now in the industry. There's so much focus on the shipping and the product and we work on and we work with software, but we're humans. Yeah. So I want to bring that into the tech workplace and saturate the market with people-centric managers so that, you know, when people are like, I don't feel that supported by my manager, all their friends are like, I feel super supported by my manager, you know, and then if that manager will then get feedback and come to one of our courses or take our (laughs) online course. And because right now I feel like if people have trouble with their manager, it's sort of tolerated. Like, oh, that's how it is everywhere. Where
1: am I going to go? That type of thing.
2: Right. I mean, there's, there's, you know, companies have different reputations for how supportive management is, but it's honestly few and far between. And the managers that are people-centric are few and far between as well.
1: So that hopefully product first doesn't mean people second.
2: Yeah, I think people first is also product first. Yeah. And where can we
1: go to either sign up to know when things are going to start rolling out or to learn more about this?
2: Uh, co-leadership.com co-leadership.com
1: Well, Jean, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a lot of fun.
2: Thanks.
0: I hope you enjoyed our chat with Jean Sue. The new project with fellow engineering leader Edmund Lau that Jean mentioned has now been running for a few years. You'll find it at co-leadership.com. That's it for this week. See you next Thursday for a brand new episode of Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.